there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm going to link a list of resources for ways that you can support Black, Indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey. And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. All right. This week we are talking about self-regulation. So self-regulation in our dogs and self-regulation is defined as the ability to monitor and manage your energy states, emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. It is something that is vital for humans to learn how to do, and we learn how to do it when we're children. And we, you know, if if your name is Sarah Stremming, you relearn how to do it throughout life <laughs> um, in different situations. But I think it's something that our dogs also need to learn how to do. And I believe strongly that we are missing the mark when we call this set of behaviors impulse control. And the reason I think we're missing the mark there is that impulse control, which is essentially the ability to control an urge, that is self-regulation, but it is under the umbrella of self-regulation. It is not in and of itself the only thing that dogs need to learn how to do. There's also a problem with the fact that most impulse control procedures in dog training are punishment procedures. And in my opinion, true self-regulation should not be punished into. I think if it's punished into, it is less robust and it is not something that the dog will necessarily choose on their own because if the motivating factor there um, for, for choosing those behaviors is avoidance of an aversive or punishment, then as soon as that aversive is no longer present, 
all of those other true motivations, um, those other motivations that are driving those other behaviors are gonna show up and take over. So before I get more complicated, let's talk about what we're actually talking about. I'm gonna give you some human examples first. I think this is a really important way for us to get clear about what we're talking about because I can understand my own self-regulation, self-regulatory behaviors better than I can understand a dog's because I live inside myself with my brain. And so I think that's a great place to start. I'm gonna talk about two different behaviors that I regularly have to engage in that require strong self-regulation on my part. So the first one, I am not being asked to do much at all these days because of the uh, little global pandemic we are all experiencing, but it's relevant anyway, and it is waiting in line at the airport. So waiting in the TSA line at the airport requires self-regulation from me. I hate waiting in lines. I hate waiting. <laughs> um, it is it is hard for me to do, but it is an important thing for me to do. Okay, so the self-regulation behavior that I'm talking about is essentially that I stand in that line. I do not make a scene. I do not yell at people. I do not exhibit aggression. And I also do not get myself worked up into an anxious state. It requires self-regulation for me to do that. So for me to not aggress at other people in line, for me to not work myself into increased heart rate, increased breathing, um, increased intrusive thoughts, kind of an anxiety state, I need to self-regulate. I need to control my own emotions and behavior. So let's talk about the motivating, um, the motiv- motivating operations at work here, which basically means what is motivating the behavior. These set of behaviors are motivated kind of by two things. One is that I'd eventually like to get on that airplane. So the whole reason I'm in the airport is to get on that airplane, which has more motivation behind it, right? So I'm not gonna go down the entire ladder and talk about how really truly this is probably all about money. <laughs> so that I can actually show up at my seminar place, teach, and make my income. Um, Or it could be about pleasure, right? It could be about going to Disneyland. The motivating operation at play here is that I would like to get on that airplane and I have to stand in line in order to do so. There's another motivating operation, which is social approval. So I don't want to be glared at. Um, I don't want to be told that I'm wrong. I actually, I hate being verbally corrected in the airport, which happens in the TSA situation more often than I care to admit, because essentially the rules change from airport to airport. You can, you know, in this airport, they want you to put your shoes in the bucket, but in this airport, they want you to put your shoes directly on the belt. And it, you know, things like that, that just vary airport to airport. And so you, you get corrected time from time to time for not knowing the rules, even though the rules are not clearly stated. And Kathy Sadeo, I, I once heard her say that this is how dogs live their lives. And that has always stuck with me. So that social approval or avoidance of correction ugh, is, is a motivator for me in this situation. And perhaps that's why this behavior is still very hard for me distant antecedents that I need to look at. So I need to consider the motivation, the distant antecedents, as well as the antecedents, or what I'm going to call in this podcast, the present antecedents to just help us all keep these straight. 
And the distant antecedents are going to be, am I sleep deprived? Too, too often at the airport, I am sleep deprived because I live pretty far away from the airport. And so if I've got an early morning flight, I, you know, have more times than I care to ever repeat had to get up around like three in the morning to get to the airport. And that spells sleep deprivation. I don't care who you are. Um, I can't go to sleep early enough to get up at three and get eight hour, eight hours of sleep. Um, that's not that's not realistic for me. So am I working with sleep deprivation? I am a person who experiences chronic pain. So another distant antecedent for pretty much all of my self-regulation is how much pain am I in today? So if I'm having, if I am well rested and in a reasonably low amount of pain, I am very capable of self-regulation. If I am sleep deprived and in a large amount of pain, I am less capable of those things. And then also stress. Stress is going to act as a distant antecedent as well as kind of a present antecedent. So as far as distant antecedents are concerned, the stress that I'm talking about is how much stress have I been in this week? How stressful is this trip itself for me? Has it been kind of um, riding on my ability to practice self-regulation, get get the right amount of sleep, eat correctly, that sort of thing. So is so stress, sleep deprivation, pain levels, these are all distant antecedents that really, really matter for me to be able to self-regulate in the TSA line. The present antecedents are going to be the line length, okay? So if I come around the corner and it is like wrapping around itself several times, I'm immediately required to self-regulate more and therefore more averse to having to self-regulate. So seeing that long line is really tough because it means I have to self-regulate for a long time. Rude behaviors of other people. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but people can be kind of rude at the airport. They can be kind of awful. The reason they're kind of awful is everything I just said. They're sleep deprived, they're stressed. If they experience chronic pain, they're probably in pain. Um, You know, this is why people are not great at the airport. So their rude behaviors can be a present antecedent that makes my life difficult as far as self-regulation in line. Timeliness, am I on time for this flight or not? Do I have time to stand in this line or not? And just in case you guys are wondering, I do have TSA pre-check. But there are times that pre-check is not active. So one of those times that I have to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to get to the airport, uh, probably when I get there, TSA pre-check line is not open yet. Um, Same goes for late night flights. So this is where this kind of still applies very much. As well as pre-check is starting to be kind of normal for people to have. So there tends to also be a line in pre-check anymore. So it all still applies. Note that... The antecedents affect the motivating operations, and this is important, okay? So the amount of pain I'm in or the amount of sleep I got last night affects my motivation here because I probably care less about the social approval and care more about just getting on the damn airplane, right? So understand that as we go, both the present and the distant antecedents affect my motivation. My motivation for social approval went out the window recently um, during a flight because it was a perfect storm. It was one of the last times I flew this year, actually. And, you know, God only knows when I'll fly again. But we were late. We needed pre-check and it was closed. Okay, so we were late. 
pre-check was closed. I was sleep deprived. I was in a reasonable amount of pain because I had just sat in traffic behind the wheel. And then I was stressed because we were late. We were actually going on vacation. So my motivation to get on that airplane was really, really high. And think about that for a second. If getting something requires self-regulation, the more you want that thing, the harder self-regulation probably is. Okay, so the more you want the outcome, the harder the self-regulation probably is. That sort of flies in the face of a lot of things we know about operant conditioning, but man, this stuff is so much more complicated than antecedent behavior consequence. So my the amount that I cared about social approval basically went out the window. A woman um, cut the line. It was a very long line, and she just kind of walked right up cut the line, got into the line. I thought that was a rude behavior. The agent, absolutely, he, he checked her passport and ushered her right in. She cut in front of a bunch of people and he let her in anyway. He didn't say anything about it. And so I said something really nasty to her, <laughs> and which I'm not gonna repeat the exact scenario because it will paint me in not a nice light. But um, I was rude in response to her rude behavior because my normal, motivation of social approval had flown out the window due to all of these other factors. And just in case you're wondering, I did apologize to her uh, later on. And she also, because of what I said, got out of line and went to the back of the line, (laughs) which just meant that I had to pass her several more times as the line wound around and it was pretty much a nightmare. understand that I kind of failed in my self-regulation there. I couldn't, I didn't cut the line, like I didn't punch anyone, but I snapped at this woman for doing something that she wasn't actually aware she was doing. And that's not the person I want to be and that's not the values that I want to hold and it actually just made standing in that line that much more painful. So we're going to get to dogs here. Don't worry about it. We are actually talking about dogs right now, whether you're kind of aware of it or not. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump to my next self-regulation behavior that I have to practice on a regular basis, which is writing. I'm working on a book and it's very important to me. So the motivation is, you know, the big overarching motivation would be publication, but that's a long, that's a far off goal. So my actual motivating operations is more of a a negative reinforcement scenario. I get to turn off the timer that I use when I write. So I write for a certain amount of time every time I sit down to do it. And I get to turn off the timer when I'm done. I also get to cross write off of my list. So it's on my to-do list for the day. It has to get done. So I get to cross it off when it's done. And that's, um, that's negative reinforcement too, in my opinion. So it is relief from the pressure to write that I'm mostly working for rather than that eventual publication, which is also there. It's also a motivating operation and also just peer approval. So above, you know, when we were talking about TSA pre-check or TSA lines, um, social approval is definitely one of my motivations for self-regulating. With writing, peer approval is one of my Uh, motivations for getting the thing written and done. And I have a small collection of peers who review it for me and their approval is important to me as well. So I understand all these different motivators. Let's talk about the distant antecedents. Again, the level of pain that I'm in. Typing is painful for me more often than not. 
And so if I'm having a low pain day, I can write much, much longer than if I'm having a high pain day. So if I'm having a high pain day, that affects my ability to do the writing. A big antecedent that is a problem for me um, with writing, which I'm going to call both distant and present, uh, kind of qualifies for both. It depends on the day, really, is the other tasks that I need to get done. How long is that list of things that I need to get done today? That will affect my ability to focus on the writing in front of me and actually, you know, bust out some words. The present antecedents that I've set up to help me would be the use of that timer. Um, producing a mostly quiet office space that's at a good temperature. It's very, very hot right now in uh, Western Washington. We're having a heat wave and I don't have air conditioning. Most people in Washington don't have air conditioning because this kind of heat is unusual for us. And that makes my office basically an oven for several hours of the day and I cannot write when it's like that. Okay, so that's a present antecedent that I need to pick the right time of day to be writing. Another one is the format in which I'm writing, and I've recently taken on um, a new software to use for the writing, which helps me organize it, and that's, that's very helpful as well. But when I was learning to do it, it was a not helpful antecedent. When I was learning the software, it actually stopped me from writing for a while because I had to figure out the software. Understand that in order for me to self-regulate, I've got to ignore the other tasks that are calling my name, I've got to set that timer and I've got to have a really perfect office setting. I usually play music that's quiet. I usually might have a couple of dogs in here, but they're, they're tired from doing something else. And then the temperature is kept appropriate. Um, and then if I'm in pain, like I take some Advil before I go right. So I have to have this perfect storm of antecedents in order to write. And it is, absolutely requiring self-regulation. It also requires impulse control to write because I might have an urge to open Facebook and if I choose not to, that's called impulse control, right? So those are my human examples of self-regulatory behaviors. You could just kind of call it being a grown-up. <laughs> it's interesting that we could call it that because in dogs, we often expect little baby puppies to self-regulate or worse, adolescent dogs to self-regulate when they genuinely have less of an ability to do so when they are young just like we do okay we had to learn how to wait in line we had to learn how to raise our hand for a question we had to learn how to sit down and study or do our homework when we wanted to do something else that's all self-regulation and you can't be expected to do it when you're a two-year-old okay so let's talk about some self-regulating behaviors that I actively train for my dogs. And understand that I'm gonna think of self-regulation as a concept, as an overarching theme, that I am going to train as many self-regulation behaviors in my dogs as I can, because it helps them be better functional pets. If we don't teach them any of these behaviors, they have a harder time doing it. Basically, the more self-regulation you have to practice on a weekly or daily basis, the more practiced you are at self-regulation. It is a good thing. So one of them is uh, being quiet in a crate to be specifically in this scenario. My dogs are crated when I leave the house. I come home, they're excited that I came home and they wanna come out. I want them to understand that quiet and calm gets them out of the crate, not the barking, screaming, oh my God, mommy's home fit, okay? So the motivation is released from the crate. And remember what I said about um, 
the increased motivation might make the self-regulation harder. That's going to be the primary motivator, though, is being released from the crate, and that's not going to change. So what you want to alter to help this be easier for your dog is the antecedents. Your distant antecedents are going to be, is this dog appropriately exercised? Has this dog had an appropriate amount of enrichment, you know, today, yesterday, this week, generally speaking, in his life? How much social deprivation did, is the dog experiencing on a daily basis? If the dog has to be in a crate eight hours every single day while you go to work, that's a huge amount of social deprivation. It will make this behavior almost impossible for them. History of reinforcement for the calm, quiet behavior, buying them the release, that's something that I set up on purpose early on with training with my puppies with much easier antecedents than this. Um, that's all in my happy crating protocol. Age of the dog also matters, okay? If they are a tiny baby who is desperate for that social interaction and they've just been socially deprived, they're probably not even capable of it. Potty needs, so again, that could be a puppy, but like if the dog has had to, has been in that crate crossing his legs for the past three hours because he really has to urinate, he's gonna have a hard time laying down and being quiet and you need to be mindful of that before you ask for him to lay down and be quiet. And this is about, Again, antecedent arrangement. If you know the dog has not peed for eight hours, just get them outside and know that you're probably not getting that much closer to this quiet in the crate behavior unless you arrange for somebody to come let him out in the middle of the day so that he doesn't have to pee so bad. Your present antecedents are gonna be the length of time he's been confined. Maybe the time of day. Um, I know that anxiety spikes for a lot of my client dogs in the evenings. Other dogs and their location and whether or not they're vocalizing, all my dogs are crated together in a room. And so if the other ones are barking, that's hard for, you know, one of them to calm down and settle in. If they've been alone alone, it will be that much harder. So that's that higher level of social deprivation. So if I want quiet in the crate, I want a dog that is capable of doing that, is an adult, has not been socially deprived too terribly, and they will show you this behavior. So at this point, Iggy, because she has a very uh, tough history with crating, which I talked about in her case study on, with her separation anxiety, um, she can settle and be quiet for me to let her out. But the first time I walk in that door, she's still going to lose it. She's still going to vocalize. Whereas Felix won't. Felix has a better history with crating. Um, he has a much smarter, he had a much smarter mommy um, than Iggy did when she was a baby. And so... Felix doesn't need to. Felix is settled. He might bark once because I showed up and then he settles and then I let him out. Understand that being quiet to be released from the crate is a self-regulation behavior and you are smartest to pay very close attention to those antecedents rather than thinking all about reinforcement. A lot of people try to train that behavior with food and they fail. And the reason is you're bringing in something that is not a currently active motivation for the dog and you are either going to do one of two things. Nothing is going to happen because I don't even want the food or the entire behavior chain changes because you've changed the motivation to food. Um, and then as soon as you get rid of the food and you go back to real life, you're back to real life. It's a completely different scenario to the dog. So the next dog example is going to be loose leash walking. Motivation tends to be progressing forward on the walk, but it, you know, it could be classic reinforcers like food. Um, but again, similar with the crating issue, if you ever want to go for a walk without feeding for loose leash walking, then I encourage you to train it without feeding. 
Uh, please do not flame me for being not positive enough in that situation. I do train my dogs to walk right next to me with food, but simply maintaining slack leash, I don't. Understand that your distant antecedents here are age of the dog, so experience on a leash, um, how much you have pulled on the dog, how much exercise the dog has had, how much um, what I'm gonna call movement satiation the dog has had. So meaning we've got dogs that need to move their bodies. And if they haven't been allowed to move their bodies and now suddenly he's on a leash and he's being expected to really, really control that body that wants to go wild and move, you're not gonna have a lot of success here. You're just not. I'm also gonna call out something that I'm gonna call action deprivation, especially my guys, border collies, you guys, they want action more than anything. They want stuff, they want activities. They wanna use their brain, they wanna use their body. Um, what they hate more than anything is being expected to do nothing. They want to do stuff, okay? Their ability, by the way, to do nothing is directly affected by how much they actually get to do stuff. If they have had tons of action and their movement needs have been met, you're now in your best case scenario for teaching loose leash walking. And then you can alter some present antecedents like the equipment the dog is walking on. You could use a gentle leader, you could use a front connection harness, um, you know, fill in the blank device that makes it easier for you to manage the dog on a leash. You can go to an easy location to train this, a location that they know really well, that's not super exciting. And then of course, the trainer's actual skill of being able to see the, the behavior that they want and being able to feel the leash beginning to tighten like all of these things matter because if you don't notice they're pulling until you're falling over your skills are what needs work um, not just theirs so just on that front you guys i teach loose leash walking by walking them off leash first so they run for an hour and a half off leash and then i walk them on a leash the last quarter mile to the car that's how it starts and then it expands and expands and expands when i see the dog's ability to do it for longer and longer so what is my point? My point is that in order for self-regulation to occur, in order for these behaviors to occur that we like, there are a lot of factors that go in. Antecedents are everything. Look at those types of factors rather than thinking about the reinforcement or punishment factors involved. And self-regulation, in my opinion, is ingenuine when it is punished into, and I know that that's not very sciencey, and I know that a lot of people are gonna call me out for using a label like ingenuine. I'm going to say that if we went back to the crate example, the genuine desire to be released from the crate. So dog, a dog that takes a deep breath and settles in order to get out, that is true self-regulation. Whereas a dog that is lying down, coiled, staring at the pet tutor, hoping it will pop another treat out, I'm going to call that, you know, yes, that's genuine too, but it's a genuine desire to get the food to come out of the pet tutor. It is not what I would call genuine self-regulation. I hope that makes sense. And we always wanna be stacking the deck in our favor. So for instance, when I let my young dogs run for an hour and a half before I ask them to walk on a loose leash, that's stacking the deck in my favor. And over time, I can skew it the other way to where they run for 30 minutes and walk on leash for an hour because I have helped them to get there over time. So when you're thinking about these things, try not to think about punishing the dog into it. Try to think about setting the dog up for success, like me showing up at the airport with an appropriate amount of sleep on board, probably some pain meds on board, and generally speaking, you know, hopefully low stress, that's gonna set me up best to self-regulate. 
All right, a few Patreon questions for you. This one comes from Jana. I found your advice in data versus expectations very helpful and started to take notes about my dog's behavior to see if my training approach is working. What is an appropriate approximate time frame to expect positive changes? After what time of no significant changes do I know that I was not training in the right way and that I have to go back and give it more thought or seek advice for a new strategy? Excellent question. It has to do with the existing reinforcement history for the behavior you're trying to change. So with that aside, let's say it's a new behavior that you're trying to shape. You should see progress in every single session. You should see forward motion in every single session. Let's say that um, it's actually a behavior you're trying to change that has a strong reinforcement history. So for instance, maybe you're trying to change your dog's response to a delivery truck pulling into your driveway. Maybe your dog, you know, my dogs certainly don't bark at delivery trucks. Read my sarcasm here. Um, Maybe your dog barks at delivery trucks and you don't like that and you'd like to alter it, but the dog's got like a two-year history of barking at the delivery truck, which means that we can assume the dog has a two-year reinforcement history for barking at the delivery truck and you're trying to change the behavior. In that sense, um, you should see small progress right away, but you're gonna continue to see resurgence of that behavior for a long time as you build up reinforcement history for a new behavior. But again, with all training, you should see forward progress right away. If you're not seeing forward progress right away, Um, and you are tracking the data because sometimes you can't actually see it with your eyes, but if you're tracking the data, you can see that there's progress, then you're gonna wanna reroute for sure. And this next one's from Crystal and it's just a terrible thing happened to Crystal's dog. Um, They were in agility class and another dog chased her dog in the tunnel basically and scared her dog. So I'm gonna kind of skip through most of the story. The other dog really frightened Crystal's dog. And now it's looking like Crystal's dog, E.B., has some lasting responses from that. So I'm going to pick up where we left off on, uh, where Crystal left off on that. So Crystal says, tonight we were outside the ring and the woman with the dog, so that's the dog in question that chased E.B., started hollering its name repeatedly to get it to come to her. And E.B. immediately got very nervous to this point. She wouldn't even take a treat, poor baby. Um, After I held her for a few minutes, she got better and would take a treat, but I could still tell she was not fully herself. So the next time that dog was going to run, I had a high value treat out. And the first time I heard her say the dog's name, I gave her the treat before she had a chance to fully shut down and it seemed to help. Do you think this is the right way to help her not get so upset or is there something different I should do to help her? So whether or not that's the right route, EB will tell you. So if she is feeling better because of the high value food, And that tincture of time will also help. So, um, you know, over time, having that dog not chase her anymore would be helpful. Um, You just need to read the data on that. You need to just be aware of what behaviors are happening. My bigger concern is with your dog developing kind of a distrust of the agility situation because she's gonna associate agility with that bad thing happening and specifically with that dog. So if, if, if this were me, I'm going to be very honest, I would ask to transfer to a different class or I would ask the trainer to have that dog be transferred to a different class. Um, That could be a lot to ask for sure, but my dog's safety and my dog's comfort, so their perceived safety, 
has to be of the utmost importance. If my dog thinks there's a reason to be afraid at agility class, whether they're safe or not is irrelevant because he thinks there's a reason to be afraid. And that's not a situation I would repeatedly put my dog in, period. So if you go back and EB is still concerned about that dog in your next class, you have a big decision to make. You need to, I personally would get out of that class because she's showing you the response specific to this one dog, but that could easily generalize to other dogs if you kind of allow it to. Um, And then this is just, you know, yes, accidents happen, mistakes happen, but generally speaking, I think it's so, so important that agility classes are well run in the sense that there's very little chance for this to happen. I think this is a dog that is in your class and it sounds like the dogs are running concurrently in one class. And if that's the case, the dog that chased her really has no business being in a class where there are other dogs running um, in an adjacent ring. And I think you have every right to ask your instructor to manage that or alter it in some way so that future bad things don't happen. But generally speaking, you know, I wouldn't say this is about trying to counter condition the feelings that your dog has. I think this is about trying to rebuild that safety that um, EB was feeling before in class that she's no longer feeling. So I hope that was helpful to you, Crystal. All right, last one is from Heather. Heather says, hi, Sarah, can you discuss how to deal with barking during agility training? My two-year-old border terrier has started barking when we train certain obstacles, especially the weave poles. I know this is a hotly debated topic as many people allow barking during agility. I don't desire this and many times we have to stop training because I don't want to reward her barking and allow her to continue to train. I've tried asking for an alternative alternative behavior like a touch to get her out of the barking, which does help, but wondered if you have any additional thoughts. So Heather, of course, I have lots of thoughts. Um, <laughs> so the first thing is, you're right, barking is not a disqualifying thing in agility, and therefore a lot of people don't worry about it. And I have I have a really um, I have a really clear kind of line in my head. So barking while being fully functional and listening to cues and not over aroused, which is very possible in a lot of dogs. My, our Aussie, for instance, um, can bark the entire time she's working and not be in a bad mental state um, is one thing. But barking that is indicative of frustration, arousal, you know, things that we don't like to be woven into our training, that's the kind of barking that I'm going to do something about. I'm not going to correct it. I'm going to correct myself. So if this is only popping up during training certain obstacles, and it's very interesting that weave poles are one of those obstacles because they tend to be one of the most frustrating obstacles for dogs to learn, then I'm going to say this is probably more about frustration in training than anything else. Of course, I haven't seen you train, so I don't actually know for sure, but that's my best guess. So what I would think on is how can I help my dog to feel very, very clear and not frustrated at all while training this? And then, of course, you're 100% free to stop training anytime the dog is exhibiting behaviors that you don't like or don't want to see continue. I wouldn't try to teach an alternative behavior to barking. I would try to alter the antecedents surrounding the barking, um, meaning get really clear about your weave poles, get really clear about your reinforcers. Most barking stops when clarity does increase. And that is it for this week. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 